on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. Well, if you think about uh, like like fermentation, you know, I think that's a good physical embodiment of what culture is. is you're inducing, mm-hmm. uh, you're introducing something into, you know, some kind of raw form of material. And the amazing thing is, is that all these cultures, these yeasts are everywhere. Like yeast is crazy. It's everywhere. We're breathing it in right now. It's on all our walls and stuff. And so when you see a little piece of fruit and it's got that little blue coating on it of yeast, it's only that the yeast that landed on there has a good medium to grow on. There's that much yeast everywhere. It lands everywhere. So the cultural agent is part of the earth, but it has to be introduced in a specific way into a specific other ingredient or set of ingredients to be this incredible, transformative, productive thing. The nutrition becomes more usable for our body. So, I mean, this has to be somewhere at the essence of what culture is, is it's a way for us to interface with this raw reality in a very productive, you know, fecund way where we're not diminishing it but, but somehow, you know, enhancing it for our own ends without diminishing it. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Stephen Martin, an artist, builder, and farmer who is also the founder of the Sacred Gardener School. Stephen has spent more than 30 years of living co-creatively with the earth, practicing traditional living skills of growing food, natural building, and nurturing community. He has written numerous books, including the newly released The Roundhouse, a meditation and guide to building a handmade house with local materials, as well as Sacred Gardening, Seeds for the Reemergence of Co-Creative Agriculture. In our conversation today, we speak of Stephen's four-year period of solitude and what eventually drew him back to society. He reclaims the divine roots of agriculture and the wisdom of our Neolithic ancestors. And finally, he speaks on the spirit of the wild and what it might take once again to grow a culture of reciprocity. Before we begin, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter for this podcast. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. You'll get access to exclusive perks, including behind-the-scenes updates, bonus interviews, and more. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to join. And now, enjoy my conversation with Stephen Martin. Welcome, Stephen, to the show. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me. I love to begin these conversations by asking my guests uh, to share a little of where they are in this moment, geographically, spiritually, emotionally, yeah, whatever feels true to, to plant us, you know, where you are. Nice. Well, um, I'm sitting by the window in my bedroom in my 150-year-old log house. And uh, I'm 
We're in the upper Ottawa Valley here, and it's incredibly peaceful, lovely day out there. Beautiful breeze, nice high cumulus clouds. It's just, uh, you could imagine it was paradise these days walking out here. Um, we were squeezed a little tight by the uh, uh, drought a little earlier in the spring, but now we've been getting lovely rains, and it feels like it shifts the energy of everything, and it really shifts the energy of myself. You know, as the drought kind of continues, I, I feel a little bit stretched tighter and tighter and tighter. And uh, there's always such an incredible relief, you know, when it comes. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. I'm very pleased to conduct this conversation today with you, having touched into some of your body of work, as well as an interesting connection to another Stephen, who we both know. Indeed. Uh, Stephen Jenkinson. Yeah. Yeah. And... And you mentioned uh, in your initial correspondence that you'd taught in the school for a few years. And this must have been just prior to my arrival as I joined the school in uh, 2013, early 2013. Right. Yeah. And uh, and I'd love to just ask one. I was curious. Do you remember what it was like to meet Stephen for the first time? Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I would just love a little vignette if you're willing. Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. Well, not surprisingly, it was... Uh, Nadia, that um, Natalie, that uh, initiated it. Um, they had not been living up here uh, probably a year, maybe two at that point. So he had used the land for a number of years, you know, kind of getting situated, and then they moved out. And they moved up here, and uh, I think they were feeling pretty isolated, like most people do when they move out to the bush. And within our small kind of uh, alternative community, the word went out that there was going to be a gathering at the yurt, which was their biggest uh, building at the time there. And so I'm always curious, always open to new people. And actually, um, well, there's actually a really big arc to this story, and I'm not sure I've ever actually told it, but among other things, to cut partway through the arc, I was up on the ridge there um, long before the word went out for the meeting. And I'd seen this teepee there for a few years. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is going to be interesting. Who's this guy? You know, Because um, in these parts, it's not totally unusual, but it's unusual enough. And I was like, okay, we'll just kind of wait for things to unfold. So this is the little piece where Natalie put it out. And uh, we gathered, and all us hippies, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the first things was um, Steve was sitting up, like on a seat, and we were all sitting on the ground. And so right mm -hmm. off, man, right off, all these egalitarian hippies, you know, where there's no hierarchies and everything's equal and all that stuff right off, man. Like half the people in the room were twigged right out just by that. Right. Um, mm. I'm not quite that idealistic at this phase of my life. So I, I, I didn't sweat it too much myself, but you know, we, uh, we talked and you know what Steve's like, um, big circles, right. 
he does big circles mm -hmm. and uh, I don't think too many people were able to kind of follow him but I felt like I was more or less able to follow him and uh, and then at some point he was like okay what do you guys think you know what do you, what do you have to say <laughs> kind of thing and it, you know it went around and <clears throat> I just remember going well I finally met somebody heavier than myself and he said thank you Wow. <laughs> and I wasn't sure how he was going to take it because, you know, being heavy comes in a couple different forms, but, um, you know, you know him. And mm. of course he received it in the right way and understood exactly what I was saying. And, uh, um, we kind of, uh, continued our relationship. And I guess, uh, I guess a few things kind of took him by surprise because, He's just such a big character. I barely would say anything. And then at one point mm. they were uh, drinking this tea, um, the Algonquin tea. And they said, you know, I make this, eh? And he was like, oh, man, you should speak up more. <laughs> like, you know, this is something to be proud of, you know, or whatever. Mm. So that was kind of my first mm. little interaction with him. Uh, th thanks for that story. And thank you for mentioning the tea as well, which I've also enjoyed um, during classes there and, and to meet you also behind that, that um, I'm grateful for that. Having explored some of your work now, you know, through the website and, and video clips and uh, essays, I certainly recognize a kinship yeah. uh, between you both. Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's not surprising to me that it sounds like he would invite you to, to teach some at the, at the farm uh, in the school. Yeah. And, and it seems to constellate, and you can correct me, uh, around this lens of the sacred gardener, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me, and maybe this is a way in to a, a vast terrain, is that the uh, logo for your mm. your own school as well is is it looks like, and I just caught it was a someone in prostration yeah. to what looks perhaps a corn plant or, or some yeah some growth, and leading to the arc back of of a kind of uh, offering back for that such a prostration. Right. And there's something in that which caught me in terms of, yeah, like that that really offers a way into, I think, what you know you speak to and what you've given your life to. And so yeah. before we sort of launch deeply into it, I would love to hear, yeah, how does that offer uh, a lens into, you know, your own inquiry and your own life's work? I think it's certainly, uh, it does to what I'm teaching now. The other little piece in the logo, if you kind of look a bit more carefully, is um, we're actually bowing down to the mound. So the altar mm. to death and decay that's in front of the corn that everything's growing out of. So it's not even just the corn, right? It's 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 the underground, in a sense, the, the underworld. And uh, that's a big part of it is, you know, I take people... I take people to a place maybe that um, has a lot of programming around it, fearful programming. And I try to do it as gently as I can. And, um, you know, to kind of first frame it for folks. And so we all kind of get it intellectually and then actually do it. Like take people's bodies, take their other being down and then, they already can kind of watch their programming filtering up, right? As you kind of come face to face with the earth 
you know, because most people have incredible amount of blockage and fear around the earth. It's really um, mm. Thomas Berry, you know, it's a very politically correct term these days, but I'll blame him. He's gone now anyways. Um, he mm. called it an autism, that we're autistic towards the earth. You know, we have a, mm. a barrier between ourselves and reality. And you can see in a big part of the school and what we teach and what Steve is teaching, I believe, is this kind of deprogramming and ripping down these structures that we've built up around ourselves. And it's deep work and it's heavy work and it never stops. The lifting never stops. You know, uh, mm. there's so much to mm. do there in terms of... Um, you know, initially, and you see it hugely with the back to the land movement that's been spurred on by this, you know, the COVID thing. But people are also ideological, and it's really, it's all driven on the kind of, um, we know this is the thing to do, is to have gardens and be at one with the earth and stuff. So let's go up and do this. And we do this. And so, but then you actually get there, and all your intellectual ideology doesn't mean anything. You have to have actual experience to be able to step into something like that. And most people don't. You know, I think of the simple thing of like, I remember hearing this years and years ago, that if people don't grow up with a pet, if they don't grow up with an animal, they'll never relate to animals like the rest of their life very often. And I feel like this is true of the earth itself. Like if you don't have a relationship with growing things, with taking care of things, with harvesting things, with all those stuff, it's it's really a big hurdle to get get over, you know? Hmm. Yeah, there's so many threads there that actually connect a lot of the conversations that I've held on this Mythic Masculine I bet. Uh, inquiry. I bet. Um, and in particular, in particular, yeah, I would love to explore some of your story, which uh, was touched upon in some of your other conversations, but felt like you did have a pretty into the wild moment in, in sort of late teens, or I think it was around 19, yeah. where you did have a somewhat of a, a, a confrontation with the way it was and, and a need to, to step back or to drop out or to, to do, to do something else than what was offered to you. And yeah, that does feel like an iconic element of of some some kind of hero's journey in a way, right? Oh, that, uh, you know, and I'll get into why that hero's journey is a frame. Yeah, hero's journey is limited, but yeah. but I'd love to hear. Yeah, what was that confrontation for you and and that part of your journey? Yeah, uh, it's really interesting. Um, I listened to Martin Shaw's interview with you. And he talked, uh, I mean, I've met him a couple times and I, I know he's talked about his, his four year stint and I had the exact same thing. It was yeah. a four year, pretty much isolated, um, interaction with the earth where I was working on my skills initially and just trying to get like everyone does when they're starting. The idea was to distance myself from my culture and try to find some of these more indigenous ways of doing stuff. You know, and so I had lots mm -hmm. of elders, I had lots of helpers over the years, and kind of, you know, really, really moved into that thing. But then, of course, when you start living with the earth, uh, she has her say. And something mm -hmm. happens, and these little fragile kind of eggs that you're kind of 
holding in your armpits for a couple years. You know, you, you don't want to really expose them to anyone because they can crack them so easy. Well, that thing eventually kind of turns into something and it gets bigger than you are and starts speaking through you, right? Like the whole kind of, but it takes those years of gestation, you know, and, and um, initiation, I suppose, as well. I think you phrased uh, in another interview, you said that you, you sort of inadvertently found yourself almost becoming a monk or, or living a certain maybe sustenance level existence, uh, maybe out of that necessity to try to, you know, move away from as much as the conditioning that you'd experienced and, and you, you know, tapping into meditation and all the rest. And you had a, uh, a sort of welcoming back or, or a sort of invitation back that came through, I understand it was a dream. Mm. I'd love if you could share a bit on that. It was actually a recurring dream. So mm. over those years, I kind of, um, I don't like the word master, but uh, I kind of got on top of my sexuality. So I was able to control things and, but still kind of experience the sensuality of my body and life. But I, I didn't uh, orgasm. I, I kept my seed. I kept all my energy all those years. Maybe not at the start, but definitely I got very used to the, the difference in feeling of when you've spilt your seed and how much energy you have and when you haven't, when you've been building your energy and for meditation and for journeying and for all these things, it's hugely significant. I'm not saying these things are absolute or anything, but for me, this is the way it was. And um, so I kind of distanced myself from all those thoughts of people in my past and all that stuff, you know, like we do. Mm. And, uh, at a certain point, I started to have this reoccurring dream of this woman. And it, like in some of the dreams, at least the initial ones, she actually came and floated over top of me. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it I, I kind of put down to these desires and stuff that I had channeled in a different way. And I thought, oh, you know, this is, this is my sexuality really kind of inviting me back. And then I think at the same time, I was having this sense that I was kind of coming to the end of my time. And it largely had to do with feeling like I was actually moving too far away from being human. I wasn't having enough interactions. And I started to really feel like I wouldn't be able to come back if I stayed much longer. And so, I mean, this is the way I'm remembering it now, too, which is more than 30 years later. So, you know, it's fiction, basically, at this point, as mm. all our memories are <laughs> that much later. So a couple of these kind of stories, I think, were, were the things that really uh, shifted me to come out. And, uh, yeah, it was a really, really hard time coming out because essentially – you know, I'd left my 19 year old behind. I hadn't developed socially because I didn't have any social interaction for those four, four years. So internally and my relationships with the earth had incredible depth and nuance. And I'd fallen into this whole other realm of communication, partially because I was deprived of 
the human realm of communication. I think it was a natural extension that your community just becomes mm -hmm. the earth then. Um, and if you're balanced enough, that's all fine. But the way that you stay balanced is through other people in general. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I could just, yeah, jump into that, you know, what comes to me actually is, I mean, this relationship to, I, I think, uh, sometimes characterizes the, you know, the city and the, and the wild and then liminal space between and how, have you seen the movie just by the way of Captain Fantastic? Yeah, I have actually told Steve to see it. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I loved it. I mean, for a lot of reasons, but I thought it was just really interesting. This interplay is what you speak to that, you know, for just a bit of a spoiler alert for anybody who's going to see it and you should see it. But the, the father, you know, he raises his kids quite far out into the bush and it seems to be portrayed in the film that to the extent that they actually have a really hard time integrating with society, yeah. uh, you know, when they interact with it. And in some ways there is this, it's possible to go too far in a, in reaction, it seems to be. And, and maybe I hear a little bit in that, what you're saying as well, that, you know, you recognize you're like, oh, wow, if I, if I don't have that tether, then I may never come back. Yeah. And I'm just struck by another uh, sense of what is the wild as well, because I do think this is something often that can get uh, sort of romanticized and mischaracterized as that, that it's human, like that it's our kind of access to a primordial, you know, vitality. And, yeah. and yet um, I know Stephen Jenkinson has talked about this too, but this idea that the wild is actually the wild because humans won't go there right. and, it, and it stays the wild because humans won't choose not to go there. And so again, there's this, I love what you said too, this uh, ideology or these ideas about things, you know, when they actually interface with the world yeah. that they, they can, you know, blunt or burn away pretty quick. And I'd just love to hear, yeah, about that relationship from you. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because I've, I've actually really come into a new place pretty recently, like in the last few years about it, where this speaks to what you're talking about. When I go into a place which would be called wild, some kind of pristine place, the power of it is incredible, as it always has been for me and as it is for everybody. It's why people crave these things. But I really have a sense that uh, we don't belong there now. I really have a sense that I don't belong there. And it's not, uh, it's not necessarily... Um, it's that we're not up to it. Like we're not up to it. We've been these domestic beings for tens of thousands of years, somewhat domesticated, right? So again, those, those in-between spaces, like where I am now, which is an old homestead, an old farm, I feel like I really belong here. I really have a place here. But there's a certain awareness that I've come that not only the wilderness doesn't actually really want us there, there, there is a sense of that, but that in a sense, you're never really there. You're just kind of in your bubble and you're exploiting this kind of energy that's there, but you're not like <laughs> surrendering yourself to it like we kind of imagine, you know? And even though there was four years for me and, endless amounts of, you know, what I was calling vision quests at the time and, and deepening of the relationship, I could certainly still feel a lot of mixed things. There is a, 
beautiful benevolence to nature where she's incredibly accepting on one level, but then there's other levels where she has been just so screwed over by us. And there's um, malevolence. There's something else there, you know, and uh, I know people love their camp and, and love all that stuff, but I, I, I just personally have come to a place where I, I kind of don't desire that anymore. I don't desire to be at places where nobody's been, which I did like crazy. I sinned so heavily in this regard, <laughs> like, you know, all over the world, but particularly in Ontario and stuff, I did find places where probably very few people had ever been and stuff. It was almost like my goal, mm-hmm. you know, and again, mm-hmm. very ideological and to get to some kind of pure state, you know, and, I think until you may be kind of a bit more self-realized, but maybe that's part of it too, is part of the process is you have to go after these ideologies. You have to try them. You have to embrace it. Mm-hmm. And it's only through embracing that reality, like we were talking about earlier, that you kind of go, you get to recheck and kind of go, okay, was this what I wanted? Was this what I was thinking it was going to be? Blah, 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 you know? Hmm. Hmm. And so you came back, it seemed to, or came back to an extent. I understand you you went to university, yeah, and sort of re refound the threads of of your life. And I wonder too, what what began your mission from then? And maybe mission is too strong a word, but what what oriented your life in terms of what you learned out there and how you wish to engage with these times? Yeah. Well, you know, um, <laughs> it's a funny thing. And I think uh, I think it's it's hard to speak about without without self-aggrandizing yourself. But at the same time, I I have to say it was hugely significant. And in a sense, my purpose has been like an arrow since it's never wavered a bit. I've just shot exactly at what that thing was. Now, when I was twenty three. I was thinking it was one thing and I didn't know necessarily, I didn't know anything. I didn't know the contexts of Mm -hmm. things. I didn't know uh, kind of, um, yeah, what surrounded this journey and how incredibly difficult it is. Because it's not just like, oh, I've had this realization I can turn other people onto this thing. All right. Because you have to totally take yourself completely apart and all your programming so that you can actually help other people do this thing step by step that you suddenly Mm. are way over here and you're like, come on over, you know, come on over. But unless you give them the steps, there's no way um, that you can be anything more than maybe an example. Yeah. Hmm. I'm curious to unpack some languaging too, because uh, not that you've used it, but I've, I'm, I'm curious how this might, you know, make bridges or not. Sure. But sometimes the languaging of decolonization, right, gets used. Uh, a culture of domination versus a culture of relationship. And, you know, I'm really myself trying to understand these big greater forces as well. And, you know, I like how you said earlier as well, this idea that you were, you were able to build a relationship to the world in a way that um, for me is so different than a culture, which is uh, sort of human centric and with like the dominant culture is in, and essentially it's, it is enforced through subtle and overt 
domination at almost every level, mm-hmm. it seems. Mm-hmm. And and it's no surprise at the same time, right, where the the, the languaging is emerging around trauma, uh-huh. right? And the, the impact of trauma, I mean, in the human realm, but also uh, in the, you know, quote, nature itself and to all other beings. And so for me, there is obviously a real relationship between these things. And so I'm trying to, in some ways, orient to your body of work in the Sacred Gardener, it seems to be a way of bridging people back into relationship to to plants, you know, to land, and not as a romantic ideology, but mm-hmm. actually as like a real, a real, you know, achieved thing. Yeah, and a physical thing, and and that is kind of my shtick. Is I really, it's a huge challenge, and it feels like nothing wants you to do it. Even the mediums themselves don't want you to do it. But to actually bridge. I don't know, an ethereal or spiritual understanding with actual physical right down to the detail, how to do stuff and, and all that caring and all that, you know, minute knowledge that's grounded in reality and to bridge these two things. It's, it's, uh, it's virtually never done. You know, it's, it's really, and yet we all come from cultures where it was all completely integrated but part of that separation is part of our journey, right? That we're, we're trying to work out. And I mean, yeah, decolonization or terms like rewilding is, it's really like glaring with that one. Um, mm-hmm. Good luck. You know, it's really, that's a, it's, that's a big journey. <laughs> mm. I'd love to, pull on some of the historical threads as well that you recently wrote about in a really excellent essay. I mean, initially I think it was approaching this idea of the three realms, which I'd love for you to unpack a little bit. And then also the essentially like the historical ripple of colonization of which I've touched on in other podcasts as well, particularly uh, Rian Eisler who uh, wrote Chalice and the Blade right? Oh, nice. and showing the impact yeah, the impact on on goddess cultures and and the rest, and yeah, I would love for you to give your your weaving of that understanding because I think it's also important too for the listener to understand like this stuff can be learned. Yes, you know, because like, it didn't just, it didn't just happen, and well, you know, here we are. That actually, if one is willing to to really you know to wrest the meaning from that there are forces at work and there is consequence and the rest that that it can be learned, and it's more than just uh you know historical you know dates and things you know but that there's real consequence to learning that i would love for you because it does seem that you've really done that labor yeah i just as you were talking there i thought about um our biological being and all the studies that's gone on with the brain now and the different levels Mm -hmm. of our brain that relate to different evolutionary parts of our journey and i think it's really the same that an animistic culture, lower brain, goddess culture, middle brain, and then this um, warrior king culture on top or something. So they're all still in us, just like all those stages of evolution are still in us. And of course, the vast depth and thickness of it is an indigenous being. For literally hundreds of thousands of years, we all lived in more or less the same kind of way which was a completely connected way, right? It's very recent history and, you know, it's kind of debatable whether it's 8,000 or 4,000 or 2,000 years ago. And at different points, different cultures, of course, kind of stepped off that old path 
And then we kind of, you know, we really have had a good run of it. We've really been on our high horse about um, the superiority of the rational mind and the superiority of kind of, uh, you know, patriarchal king, warrior king kind of cultures. And it's really, I think it's really only come into question in the last, what, 50 years or something, which is pretty fucking amazing that we're actually at a, at a point where we can start to self-reflect and kind of go, you know, like, again, somebody like Maria Gambutas, you know, she was working for all these um, male anthro- anthropologists and different people and working under them. And she kept on finding these goddess figurines, you know, at a deeper level. And then found like something like 30,000 of them or something like that at a certain level is like, are you going to acknowledge like that this was a thing? Or are you still going to say like these were toys or whatever they said they were to kind of brush it off? Um, it's happened in classes of mine where people have just said, well, it's human nature to to fight and to have conflict and to have war and stuff. And I'm like, Oh, what are you basing that on? You know? And they're like, well, like ever since the Greeks, you know, like ever, ever since, because for them, that's where history started because in a sense it is where our history starts. Um, quite a deliberate sense really. And, and so I'm like, well, you know, did you know that there was these cultures that have been found that, used metallurgy like they could actually form things out of metal but it was all sacred objects they never had any weapons and when they studied their bones and their Mm -hmm. bodies they never found any people had died from wounds from weapons so in fact you're wrong there has been other cultures that were not violent cultures that did not oppress their people we assume by by a few things like this because as you said you know that that force thing. If you take anything far enough in our culture, it, it kind of rears its head up and it's so difficult. And then as you start to study it, you realize that right from, you know, birth to death, we're controlled in this thing that every time we might come in contact with actual reality, there's this heavy ideology and structure that's there to prevent you from doing that essentially. You know, and um, well, that's kind of not really where your question was going, but that's where the answer is. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate also, I mean, there's very real examples even happening now. I'll just bring oh. up the example of Ferry Creek, which is, you know, a location very close to where I am, where the old growth forests are, you know, under assault for, you know, the last 2.7% on the island here. Unbelievable. And, you know, activists, protesters, you know, quote, protesters, what, you know, inside they call forest protectors, which is what they are, are being arrested on, you know, hundreds uh, up up to now to protect the old growth. And it's interesting that, you know, one only has to essentially challenge that system of domination to realize that it is the undercurrent that everything swims in. You know, like it seems invisible until you challenge it. And then all of a sudden, boom. There it is. And now, of course, the police force is essentially becoming a private security firm for the logging company. And that's just, of course, one example of the same force that stretches all the way back to Gilgamesh. You could say, you know, chopping down the forest to to build the city uh, walls. And so it's not different. And yet, yeah, it's it's coming to some point of real 
visible consequence, one could say, right, to the biosphere mm-hmm. and, and sort of impossible to ignore. And in some ways, I feel like you you touched essentially the relationship between the realms as an, an older understanding uh, that seems, you know, perhaps in different forms that uh, an, an indigenous relational perspective would probably recognize as the three realms all have, you know, their own, their own way or their own nourishment and their own relationship to each other. And I would love for you to speak a little bit about these realms and how they re- interact with our understanding of, you know, you called it Middle Earth, which is also, yeah, an older understanding, recognizable and token as well. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I just found that really, really uh, helpful when you spoke about that. I guess it's it's kind of, um, in a sense, it's a framing. So I kind of need a, I need a context, in a sense, to talk about it even. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's go to the Garden of Eden then, because that also is such a, you know, it is the sort of holiest ground of both, you know, decimation and then the fall, uh-huh. or maybe a memory of something, an older understanding, which you did also explore in that essay. Yeah. I wrote this about a year ago or something, so I actually can't even really remember it to just jump back in there. But um, mm-hmm. I guess what comes to mind is, and it's it's backing up a little bit to one of your former questions, which is that how do you test these ideologies and where can you test them and where can it actually be something that's real and not just fantasy? And this is really, really the idea of the sacred gardener. It's not that I'm the sacred gardener. It's that we all need to become sacred gardeners. And the garden is a place where you can actually practice this Mm. because there is a high level of control. And so it is up to you whether you let the wilderness into that space, whether you honor the underworld, whether you honor the ethereals, you know, and how you garden, and this was a Schumacher quote, is like how you garden is exactly how your society will function. Mm. And that the culture grows out of the agriculture, not the other way around. And so mm. this is kind of the foundation wow. of this idea that if we could get this thing that we can slow down and practice in a really honorable way, which truly is um, embracing diversity. Like all the all the kind of political aspirations that we have, you can actually do it all in the garden. You know, your prejudice, forgiveness, your allowance, your compassion towards things that you don't understand or like, you know, and, and all of these things come into play And you can easily become that patriarchal ogre in your own garden, right? And of course, Mm. you know, my story is, and I think the way that I came to recognize this is I was a forager before I was a gardener, like for years. And so I, I learned how to leave stuff. You leave stuff for the wild. I learned that if something beat me to something, I didn't hate it. It just knew the thing better than I did, you know? Hmm. Uh, and, and this kind of idea. So then when I started to garden, it just seemed like all of the ideas were incredibly backwards, you know? And in a sense, it really spurred me to research it, um, both on the physical planet, which I, I did through the, uh, the, the Mayan people uh, in a couple different areas of Mexico 
and to look into it in in the in the books, you know, in the records, and kind of try to find out did people do this another way, you know? And really, like the huge gift that we've been given is that there were First Nations people here, and that there are still First Nations people here, because in a sense, this gives us the ability to see. <laughs> to model this thing that wasn't corrupted by the whatever the Judaic hierarchy 3,500 years ago when that Garden of Eden story was made, made up, hmm. you know, because there's clearly parts of it that were taken directly from goddess culture and then all turned around 180 degrees. So the very things that, you know, maybe women in particular were bowing down to, which was like the serpent energy and the tree of everlasting life, these these things, the tree of knowledge. These things were part of our culture for tens of thousands of years. Probably women evolved them, basically. I think there's a fair amount of evidence to, to that end. And then the powers mm -hmm. that be at a certain point went, no, these things are evil. Let's make a story about this and twist it all around. And And we've been living it ever since. You know, and thank God mm. that, you know, I've had elders, people like Henry Lickers, who've kind of shown me that no, 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 agriculture is this incredible gift from divinity. Mm. It came from our ancestral ethereal relations. It was born into this reality. And it's a gift, right? And part of that gift to circle back to our other thing is through agriculture, we don't have to interfere with the wild as much. We don't have to go into other people's places and take their children, you know, which is essentially foraging in the wild is what you're doing. Hmm. So this very thing that's seen in Western culture as a degraded form somehow of, of life and that there's a more pure life where you're just foraging and hunting for stuff and stuff, not a fact at all, you know, and there's people here who, who are, and their stories are different than our stories about it, you know? So thank God. Hmm. Otherwise the, it'd be a lot harder to find our way back. Hmm. Thank you for that. And thank you for thanking God, because that's another thread that <laughs> you spoke to in the essay about Yahweh as, you know, characterized as a, maybe a older Christian God, but the fact is that it actually, you know, and you're linking it to a pre-Christian God that was sort of draped. And and the, the stark contrast, actually, to this sort of loving, you know, forgiving God versus this, the older punitive, uh, you know, angry one that, you know, it seems more obvious when you see it from that perspective that, in fact, you're right, those, that symbology of the serpent, of the certain uh, knowledge turned itself as a way of essentially justifying what seems to be a, a culture of domination, right? Against the goddess that seems to have supplanted the older myth of, of relationship. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I, I was struck by, you said something that the, there's this need to become, I, I don't think you said become shamans, but you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm very careful not romanticizing that or appropriating this idea, but this sense of, like what it takes to to be back in relationship or rebuild relationship, what it takes to you understand what is food, like what is food for the underworld, right? What uh -huh. is uh, food for the the other world uh -huh. or the overworld? Like these kinds of skills 
like that you don't need quote you know you don't need in a culture of domination but the consequence of that like we said you know topsoil you know so heavily depleted agriculture of mass monocropping of course is you know on the one hand i live you know in a farming area like that and you know it, it's green you know looks looks kind of pretty in some ways but if you know what you're looking at yeah. in this sense right you see it's basically ecocide that is hard to see unless you're actually sort of able to or invited to see it. And so again, I, I really, there's so many threads here that are sort of jostling for attention, but I wonder if, you know, how do we, how do we approach that sort of archetypal skill set once again? Right. Well, pretty much like we approach everything kind of feebly and, and, you know, bumbling, <laughs> you know, and it's actually the only way to do it, you know, and it's, um, you know, some of us are lucky enough to have some people who have shown us ceremony and um, mm-hmm. they might give you an idea, but it's like anything else, like riding a bike or whatever, you have to do it yourself. And it's only through doing it in your falls, in your ineptness, that you start to, to put it together, the pieces. And those pieces are incredibly special and, and valuable and uh, again, this is where this idea of these things being secret is. Um, it's not that you're trying to hide them from people. It's that they have a life of their own. And by exposing them to certain types of consciousness, you can actually damage them. Like the knowledge is living and your relationship to it is living. And especially when you're just starting, it's even more fragile then. So it needs to be, you need to have an environment of trust, but also of openness and experimentation, you know, like it has to be something that we evolve. We can't just take somebody else's ceremony, maybe to start, right, is, is you need a starting mm-hmm. place. So lots of First Nations stuff has kind of been new age sized. I just made up a word. But, you know, <laughs> kind of turned into something more palatable and then appropriated, right? Mm-hmm. And that's all, you know, very, very complicated stuff and, and hard to get into with, with the, you know, the, the political correctness of the emphasis of that on this, these days. You know, I just don't even know how I would have started if I was starting now. Because for me, it was just like, oh the red road these people understand so let's just follow what they're doing right and it was really only after i don't know a decade or two of kind of hanging out with those folks and really realizing like okay this is just another form of colonization this is just another form of you know me taking from you again so uh how do i find my own feet and how you find your own feet is is very much through that kind of shamanic way because when you feel the energies, and we all feel the energies, right? Certain places like where you are on the West Coast, the energies are bigger, you know? And uh, you get around the ocean and around cliffs and around 300-foot trees and stuff like that. You got big energy. And so if you're at all starting to get open, you can feel these beings and you can start to bow down to them. You can start to acknowledge them, you know, and, and have some, some humility, you know, instead people are kind of like just wanting more and more and more. Right. So 
will fly across the world to go to a super powerful place like that, or will fly across the world to mm. go to ayahuasca or something like that, because we can't see the beauty in this and the power in this simple little flower that's at our feet. We're all just wanting more and more and more, right? We're actually still totally in the colonization mode, except for the, mm. the object of desire has changed, you know, and that's, that's a, uh, like I said, that's a hard journey, you know, to to come around with that stuff. And there's no way to do it that isn't bumbling and awkward, at least in the initial phases, you know, initial stage. Hmm. It strikes me that this represents, or maybe represents, embodies, enacts a, a different kind of archetype. And I know if we just speak to uh, a, a masculine archetype that, you know, there's... The, the options to pick from, at least, you know, in sort of contemporary masculine uh, conversation, it tends to be, you know, the ones made famous in the the book, King War, Magician, Lover, right? right? And, you know, Bly, of course, was, was pretty on the wild man as well as this sort of more primordial pan type figure. And there's something, though, in what you're speaking of, though, to me, which speaks to what feels like a more mature, almost like f- tender of the of the wild or like the the one willing to bow and, and and to nourish you know like i really feel like that as in a i mean an old and also emergent archetype is so necessary to be reclaimed mm. and to be and to be venerated as well you know in a way that again doesn't doesn't aggrandize but but actually holds in such high esteem those capacities because you don't typically associate them right with with men or sort of values of men that tend to be, you know, upheld in the, in a culture of domination, which, you know, again, tends to be an, an action of power and prestige and, and even in personal growth, I often, especially in personal growth, you know, spaces with men, this, those same qualities are, are upheld mm-hmm. as ideal, you know, whether it's crushing your day, you know, um, and not the quiet, humble, you know, steward of, of a place or of, of what really feels to me, at least, it, it roots in the lover, mm, right? Like the, to me, there's there's qualities of the lover in sure. here, yeah. Which and it's you know just to loop it right back to your story too. You know, you talked about your own relationship to your sexuality and and coming. You said getting on top of it in a way, which to me I felt was a, a sense of a yeah being in relationship, integrating it in a way where it didn't run the show, yeah. and in some ways maybe honed that capacity of sensual mm. relationship to the world, which is also I feel such a necessary emergent understanding of this moment and i would just love for you to share a bit more on that yeah it's a that's an interesting thought you know um we do a whole uh session one of the four sessions and it's the last one because it's actually the most difficult stuff to get to on um the masculine the sacred sacred masculine and again one of these terms that's been used so much in the new age movement and stuff but um we don't actually talk about any of those archetypes um, maybe a little bit of kind of Bly is in there, but I, I feel like, um, in a sense, uh, our physical bodies are not really super relevant, uh, in terms of what sex you, you ended up as, you know, Steve talks about this, so I, I will kind of refer to him cause I don't want to just steal the idea, but the, the idea that in fact, everything and all of us are feminine 
we all start off as feminine and that the masculine is actually an aberration of the, the pattern. And it enables, um, this is my own piece. It enables evolution to leapfrog as opposed to the way things used to reproduce, which everything was female and would just self reproduce and self reproduce. Um, no pollination, no crossing. So I, I do feel like, again, like what we were referring to earlier, that essentially the, the level of, of our sexual identity and all that stuff is very thin. It's a very shallow layer at the top. Uh, I'll tell you a little story. One of the first times I realized this, it was in, it was in uh, Chiapas in Mexico. It was in this little town. The name's escaping me, which is probably good anyways. I probably shouldn't, shouldn't say it. It's a pretty special place. And uh, the tourists would show up there around noon or something, and by then all the ceremony was over. But every morning, starting at dawn, there was tons of ceremony in this one church. All shamanic healers, basically, it appeared to have very little to do with Christianity. But in any case, there was kind of gates in this church, and um, it just the way they worked it, you couldn't stay in the town. So there was never anybody there, never any tourists there, but we just kind of huddled in the bushes and overnighted it so that we could be there at the dawn. And so they were all like initially like kind of like, well, and you guys stay there. So then they watched us, <laughs> they watched us kind of in the portaco, like in the opening and they could read us. Right. And they could read us. And then they were like, okay, you come in the next gate. And then you stay here. And anyways, just to make the story a little bit quicker, uh, we ended up at the front in right by the cross. And again, there was this dude wearing purple robes up way above Christ. And Mary was the central figure and Christ was kind of secondary. So that was interesting. And um I was deep in meditation by then because we'd gone through like a couple hours of this and uh, they handed us a candle and we lit the candle and I, you know, I'm a practitioner of meditation. So I, I went into myself and was just feeling, you know, just journeying with the energies that were there. And then something took me away and somebody was with me. There was actually a couple people with me. And I was well aware that these were the people that were surrounding me. We went places, things happened, we saw things, all this. I came back, I opened my eyes, and my candle snuffed out right exactly when I opened my eyes. And then I looked over just to see who this freaking monster powerful person was who had kind of had me under their wing a bit. And it was this old lady and she looked back at me and she just kind of, you know, this super small little Mayan lady about four feet, you know, and it was the first time I ever went, oh, in that realm, there's no sexual identity. There's no, <laughs> there is no male, no female. And this is the bigger realm that we all come from. So all this squabbling about male and female and all the kind of, sexual identity stuff i think it's we're all struggling around in a pretty shallow pool there it's really not too much to it 
and uh, to to not realize that we are both male and female in this incredible conjoining all the way up our being is is uh, you know it's a travesty of our age right like apparently the celts understood this they understood that all men had a woman's mm-hmm. soul they were female their soul and all women and can you imagine mm-hmm. if we grew up with this would there be all this struggling with transgender stuff and all this stuff would we still be all fucked up about this probably not it comes from all our boxed in programming, you know, and you're like, I don't identify with that because mm. it's such a narrow slice. Mm. You know, you, you thank you for the story. And it makes me think of, again, what is the function of culture, right? Or what do we, what do we even understand that culture is? Because, you know, I think that if, if one isn't careful or just sort of has a general vague sense of what culture is, you might say, oh, yeah, you know, that's a culture. This is a culture. And I know that uh, Stephen Jenkinson, you know, has talked at length in, in school about that the dominant thing that we call culture actually is not a culture mm. you know, based on a certain criteria of understanding that one could see it as actually an anti-culture mm. or, or almost like a, a being that eats cultures that devours real cultures. And so I think it's helpful to perhaps just, I'm curious to hear your take on with this understanding. And I'm, I'm, I'm drawing these threads now of one's capacity to be in relationship, you know, whether we're talking about relationship to, to land, to our, you know, other than human kin to the realms of, you know, the upper, lower and the middle to even in oneself. Right. And if one could even say that the, if the dominant culture is conditioning around the binary as a hard, you know, this is how men are. This is how women are. And I see it now as this disconnection from one's own other realms that, that then that's where the opposition seems to come from, right? Or, or, or self-judgment or externalized judgment, you know, the deep violence and phobia against trans people or against queer folk. And so for me, I'm, I'm now dreaming. I'm like, so what is real culture then? Yeah. Like what, what could we say is the function of, of real, you know, fertile, wise and, and, you know, achieved culture. And, and I'd love for you to speak on that. Well, if you think about uh, like, like fermentation, you know, I think that's a good physical embodiment of what culture is. is you're inducing, yeah. uh, you're introducing something into, in a sense, um, I guess, I want to be careful about my language here, but uh, I, I can only think of raw you know, some kind of raw form of material. And the amazing thing is, is that all these cultures, these yeasts are everywhere. Like yeast is crazy. It's everywhere. We're breathing it in right now. It's on all our walls and stuff. And so when you see a little piece of fruit and it's got that little blue coating on it of yeast, it's only that the yeast that landed on there has a good medium to grow on. There's that much yeast everywhere. Mm -hmm. It lands everywhere. So the cultural agent is part of the earth, but it has to be introduced in a specific way into a specific other ingredient or set of ingredients to be this incredible, transformative, productive thing. And then like from a nutritional point of view, and again, I'm talking on many levels, but we're speaking physically here, the the nutrition becomes more usable for our body. So, I mean, this has to be somewhere at the essence of what culture is, is it's 
a way for us to interface with this raw reality in a very productive, you know, fecund way where we're not diminishing it, but, but somehow, you know, enhancing it for our own ends without diminishing it. You know, and this is the challenge of our age, right? And even just as individuals to try to be that agent, to try to live your life in such a way that you are not adding to that other thing and the diminishment and the sterilization of reality, but that you're adding to the ferment, you're helping it all grow, you know? And then the idea of taking doesn't seem like such a big thing uh, because you're giving so much and you're generating so much that to take just seems like it's just, it's just part of this cycle. Right. But when you don't do the other stuff and all you do is take, then, you know, that's why so many of us feel all super shameful about taking anything, even our place on the planet. We feel shameful about because we come from this mm -hmm. culture where there was no giving back. There was no feeding of those things. Mm. Well, you know, you, you remind me of a, another element. Um, I think it was a shorter clip that you uh, had online, but you spoke about this idea of if agriculture is seen in, in its older understanding or, or alchemical reciprocal understanding that you are tending these, these, I think you said, you know, cousins or kin and they respond by that tending typically, not always, of course, but they tend to respond to that tending with, abundance. And therefore, there, there's a capacity to receive in that sense because of that reciprocity. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting to me too, that when you really consider, you know, I'm just looking at like a, a sheaf of corn or, I mean, yeah, a piece of fruit. I mean, the amount of seeds that are generated mm -hmm. from, you know, one seed, from one well-tended seed and fertile mm -hmm. soil and, and how nature responds, like it's, it's deeply awe-inspiring to even you know, contemplate a little. And, and I've, yes. I'm, I'm struck by how, yeah, but I'm struck by how non, um, inducing it is to just the regular mind of somebody, you know, day to day going about their business to not say, this is incredible. This is how quote nature responds by, you know, uh, uh replicating itself hun often hundreds of times over right. in a single yeah, 300 you know, fruit or, or offering. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and then, of course, what follows for me, of course, is the great tragedy, like you said, of, that that somehow is just mundane, you know, that we're like, oh, yeah, you know, that, that's the way it is, or I'm entitled to it for not giving not back enough. anything, <laughs> or it's still not enough. Yeah, it is, is unbelievable. And yet, again, I go back to this question of what is real culture then? Because if a culture fails to to draw that understanding to, to one, then I see that as that's culture failure. I, I would, I, I think it's, it, 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 one could safely say that that is actually a form of cultural failure. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's true, you know. Yeah. And then maybe I, I, I now see, of course, in, in light of what your offerings uh, seem to be as well, that you, you are inviting in that sense of, you know, skillfulness and, and I, I sense it's a real uh, aspect of awe. Mm. right of of definitely of this being oh, and definitely. and and what it takes it's it's it is a, a it's a love story yeah and it's 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 by necessity too it's not an option mm. we all have to get mm -hmm. there or you are a highly dysfunctional human being it's like being able to love another person same thing if you can't do that boy mm. 
you know, it's, it's not going to be a good life. And I, I think about the, the feeling of isolation that people have, you know, and because they're not connected to anything, right? They, they don't do any of this stuff. And so they don't know where they belong or what they should be doing or anything like that. But mm-hmm. if you're actually engaged in the earth, it, it, you don't ever have to ask these questions. You know exactly what you should be doing. And, uh, you know, how, how to make it interface with our culture is, is that's, that's more challenging, but you know what you should be doing. And that, that lover, that ability to be able to love the earth and, and love other people. I mean, it should just be natural, right? Mm. But again, we come from this pretty unnatural, you know, place where, yeah, it's, it's all completely fragmented, right? There's little, little pieces of authentic culture left, but of course, when a ferment goes off, it really goes off. And you got to say that that's pretty much what's happening. Toxic. You know, uh, I appreciate that link between fermentation going off and and that the 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 cultural or yeah understanding the culture from that lens as opposed to a kind of you know uh, bottomless cynicism right. or something as well right which again is understandable yep. to to and I know others too that have that sense right that humans are toxic therefore um, they can't wow. ever do any good uh, and it's better if we just, you know, shuffle along. It's it's hard to avoid some of that, you know, when you look out and it feels pretty bleak. And yet at the same time, that does feel like it once again dismisses the great possibility that that we were also called here for a reason. Mm. You know, that life, you know, invited us here. And not to say therefore we're crown of creation, but that 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 doesn't mean that there's no place for us. That's right. Yeah. We can have a purpose too. Mm. Well, I feel we're winding down the conversation today, Stephen, and I'm very appreciative. And I wonder, yeah, what would you like to leave the listeners with as we close our time today? Oh, yeah. I, I should see this question coming because it's always there and it always surprises me. Oh, well, these are hard times. These are really, really incredibly divisive times. So if I was to encourage any kind of mindset I would think about tolerance and not trying to be so black and white about everything. Try to sit in the gray on something. Just try to not be convinced one way or the other, you know, and um, to, to not be so, you know, in our desperation kind of clinging to these ideologies that are all, pretty imbalanced. Um, a lot of the stuff that I see kind of flying around is really, uh, well, reactionary. And I, I think it comes back to this thing of a lot of the stuff that people are talking about now goes unseen. And so it seems like it's all happening now, but there's actually nothing unusual happening now that hasn't been happening for a couple thousand years. It's just really in people's faces and you have to be involved. You don't get to just stand back and kind of go um, observer, you know, Uh, everybody's getting pulled Mm -hmm. into this. And as with all illness, and this is, you know, what I teach, it's, it's part of a rebalancing. It's part of a cleansing. It's an absolutely necessary part of our psychic evolution 
And there's a lot of evidence to this effect that viruses actually were the things that evolved us in many, many ways. And so when we're led by our fear, then we just suppress things, of course. And uh, so mm. I guess just thinking about that, you know, just not being led by fear, but maybe maybe to even just entertain the idea of being led by faith that there is a, a larger intelligence, there's a larger ancestral network that is orchestrating things so that we're exactly where we're supposed to be to realize mm. something, you know, and to have some he- healing. You know, I appreciate that uh, seat too. And, and, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm also feeling this, I don't know, my own danger of does that make what's happening and if you're referring to covid and the sort of great disruption that you know from the human side it looks it's you know it's been very significant obviously mm-hmm. i mean great disruptions of human you know endeavor in the world uh, and at the same time from the quote nature side there's this sense of you know maybe the story for nature is actually quite different you know maybe it's just being itself and of course, the the narrative that gets brought forth from an oppositional uh, human centric culture is that it, nature is against us and you know out to get us, and it, this is a war. And I, I am just wondering of this idea too of like how does meaning come from something that maybe isn't human centric? And and Martin Shaw talks about this. You know, you mentioned the interview we did way back as well. And in some ways, you know, the the meaning may not show itself for some time, or or at least oh, yeah. the the ability to craft meaning from some circumstance and from this great happening. Definitely. And I think it actually becomes really over time. It becomes very easy to, I don't know about very easy, but a lot clearer what the whole, again, story arc, the uh, what's happening, you know, and, and until you kind of see how it plays out to a certain degree, you don't necessarily know yeah, where, where it's all going. Mm-hmm. But I do feel it like it's a very, actually a very gentle thing that's going on. I think the earth's been incredibly gentle with us. I think there's, you know, lots and lots of climatic things going on and cultural things. Mm -hmm. And it's just amping it up a little bit more and more until we can hear it, right? Because, you know, it could have gone a very different way, like the Black Death. (laughs) Yeah, I hear I hear in that then a, a plea for uh, for a relationship, for coming back into contact. That if if the earth is you know whispering louder and louder, to say, hey, yeah, you can't keep doing yeah. this and expect you know your place to continue as it's been so much so. And 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 just one one final thought there, I was thinking, you know, is that you've used this term a few times um, for being in relation with things. So I'm gonna just say that. Like this is the bowing down part is being in relation to stuff. And that when you don't, when you're not in relation to things and you're not feeding them, you're not tend. It seems like then the nature of things is for that to go. Hmm. Because in a sense, it's calling you to tend for it by that balance. So it's not like we can just casually be in relationships with people. It's just like with people in your family. Maybe if you don't contact them enough, then they start thinking there's something wrong going on, something suspicious or bad with you or whatever. Like we have to keep in touch. It's a lot of work, but we have to do it. This is our work. Mm. 
is to keep in touch with all our relations. Mm. That's a beautiful place to close. And Stephen, once again, thank you so much for our conversation today. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for, for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. And once again, please consider becoming a patron supporter of this podcast. Head to themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to learn more.